This morning, as, as we begin, I first want to pray, and I want to take just a quick minute, probably two or three, maybe, um, to, to share uh, with you what God was talking to me about this morning as it ties together with where we're going and what's going on in the world around us. So uh, let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, for this time to gather together uh, virtually through the internet, Lord, and we know, God, that you're reaching into places that we may never be able to go with our own feet, but God, the gospel message is the power, your power unto salvation, and we believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and brought us back into fellowship and relationship with you by paying the debt that we owed, and Lord, we're, we rejoice in that. We're grateful as we celebrated last week the remembrance of the fact that our Savior Jesus lives and he's alive. And Lord, as we pray for the other churches in our community, I want to pray for the United Methodist Church here in Canyon City today. Lord, we know Pastor Dennis there is also ministering online through Facebook and reaching out to the congregation of the Methodist Church here, but also um, reaching into other homes also throughout Colorado and the United States and, and elsewhere, Lord. So use him mightily, Lord. Give him a, 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 your uh, words of truth to give to those around him. And Lord, sustain that church, grow that church. Lord, may, may this church here, Livingstone Calvary Chapel, and all the other churches in Canyon City and Colorado and United States, the world, Lord, when we get this opportunity to come back together, may we, may the, may the, may there be not a seat available because of this desire, Lord, to just be back in fellowship with you. For those who maybe have never even come to a church service before, but are watching online and are, are curious and interested and want to be a part of a church body, a church family now, Lord, bring all those people back together when the stay-at-home order is lifted and we can come back together in your name, Lord. May we be bursting at the seams with those who love you. And so, Lord, in our time together in our study, Lord, we ask that you teach us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So sharing with Justin earlier today that as I've been preparing for Revelation chapter 6, you know, we're kind of getting into the nitty-gritty now of future things in, in regards to prophecy and in times events. We're going to really, chapter 6 opens the door to all the way through uh, Revelation chapter 18, a little bit into chapter 19. And um, what I've been doing is I've been spending a lot of time um, listening to uh, other studies, uh, uh, reading some, some interesting commentaries, and with the internet, like Darwin was saying, and in light of what is going on in the world today, there is so much more information out there in regards to, hey, this is what we're going through, and this is what the Bible says about it. And, and let me tell you, there are a lot of people out there that are out of their minds in what they think the Bible says. Um, and... Uh, I, I mention that to you as really a, a, a place of warning. Um, we got to be careful what we're putting in. And whatever we bring in, we want to bring through the counsel of God's word brought into context. Uh, we, have, we have the municipalities, we have secular government, we have doctors, we have so many people right now speaking to our, our, our current situation. And as you guys know, for every five opinions on one side, there's five opinions on the other side about what to do and how to do it and what's best. And there's so much uncertainty tied around that. There's not one solid voice that rings out for us to follow and says, go this way and do these things. And, and in that uncertainty, I think the enemy, spiritually speaking, is using fear to control control, to manipulate, and to gain ground into people's hearts and in people's minds. Well, as we as Christians take that knowledge and that information of the things that are going around us, we kind of want to know spiritually what does that mean for us? Future speaking, what does that mean for us in relationship to God's will for our lives? And so we come to prophecy. We, we look at things and we try to discern, you know, these famines and these pestilences and these floods and the earthquakes and all the things and wars and, and rumors of wars that are, are going on in the world around us. And we, we all have this sense, like we've been talking about, that, that this could be the time for the Lord's return. And so the church, we as believers know that God has spoken to us about these things, and, and we want to know, and then the rest of the world that, that also has, Bible says, God's written eternity on their hearts, they know that this life isn't all that there is, they are searching as well. And so, so we have this fortunate opportunity to study God's Word, especially since we're in the book of Revelation, as it will be, as it, or as it happens to be even before any of this stuff started coming on. We've been studying through the book of Revelation, and, and here we are getting answers for what the future holds. But there are many opinions out there also. 
And, and, and we have to be just as careful to discern the secular things that are, that, that are coming into our, our lives, into our, into our vision, into our ears, into our hearts, into our minds, and not to be carried away by a spirit of fear, but to come to the Lord, to be led by him, and to be, be, um, be moved with the, the, the power of God through his Holy Spirit. And, and, and we know that that ultimately manifests itself in the spirit of love and in a sound mind, not in fear. Well, the same is true in regards to spiritual things with prophetic events and, and, and the Lord's return and what that means for us, the church, and what it means for the rest of the world. And, and, and we want to filter through and not come out on the other side with a spirit of fear or in fear or in, in, in this place of anxiety. And if that's the place that you come as a result of it, then whatever you are being taught is probably not from God. Unless you're in this place where you are fearful of what's coming because you don't have the assurance of, of the redemption of Jesus Christ, which we talked about last week. And for that reason, there's reason to fear. But only to the place where you're moved to the spot where you go, I need to have a relationship with God. And that ties into this quiet time that I had this morning with the Lord and the passage of Scripture that I was reading through and God spoke to me. And it's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, it's the, the, the whole chapter is about the crucifixion. And at the time, we're told that when Jesus gave up his spirit, when he cried out, it is finished, and surrendered his soul to his Father in heaven, gave up his life, one of the things that we are told in verse 51 is that the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, there's a lot of significance involved in that when you understand what the veil of the temple was all about. Inside the temple, is, is, there was two compartments. There was the holy place and the most holy place. And, and in between the two was a large veil, a very thick veil, as a matter of fact, at this point. Some say and estimate that it was over a foot thick at this point in which this happened. <clears throat> and yet upon Jesus' death, from the very top to the bottom, this veil was torn in two. And this veil was a barrier. It was to keep people out from the holy place of God, the most holy place, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was at, the mercy seat, the place where God would reveal his glory and manifest himself here upon this earth during that time and, and, and meet with his people. And as a matter of fact, it was such a, a special place that the high priest was only allowed to go into that holy place once a year with the, on the Day of Atonement with the blood sacrifice of the Lamb to make, make payment for the sins of the nation of Israel for the people. And we are told that if the, the high priest didn't do everything that he was supposed to do as commanded in God's law before going in there through the sanctifying and purification uh, uh, ceremonies that were to take place and, and with the blood of the Lamb, that he would be struck down dead, that nobody could be before the presence of God without the covering of the blood of the Lamb. And we know that Jesus is the blood of the Lamb. He is the Lamb of God who, was, who came to take away the sins of the world for those who will believe and trust in him. And, and that, that, that act of the temple being torn is just the, the hand of God. I always think in my mind like these strong men who take like telephone books and they're like, ah, and they tear the telephone book into two pieces. And it's like the hands of God reach down upon the, the death of Jesus Christ when payment was made for our sins. And he tore from the top to the bottom that veil of separation so that we, who believe, could be brought into the very presence of God, that we could have fellowship with God. And that was necessary because we know back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, that, that as a result of the sin, they were separated from God. They separated themselves from God. Communion, fellowship, life-sustaining fellowship was broken. And in order for us to be reinstated, to be reconnected with God, there had to be that, that blood payment made by the perfect one, Jesus, the Lamb of God. And I remind you of that this morning and connect these dots because we don't have to live in fear because we have truth. And we have truth because we have knowledge that comes from God himself, the creator and the sustainer of all things, the one who has written things into existence, the one who has very spoken all things into existence, who knows the very beginning to the very end, and every thing that takes place in between. Today, in your lives, God knows. We don't have to live in this place of uncertainty that brings forth fear and anxiety and worry. We can live in this place of truth, this place of knowledge, this place of, of understanding because of our relationship with God, because the veil's been torn, because Jesus paid 
the debt that we owed so that we may be reconnected to the creator who knows all things, the great I am. And so this morning as we jump into Revelation chapter 6, I, I, I give you that because there are there's some highly technical things going on here, prophetically speaking, and, and some things that we want to discern, and we don't want to discern them on our own. We want to discern them through the, the empowering and equipping of the Holy Spirit that comes as we study God's Word. And, and, and so um, when you hear something out there in the world that's secularly speaking about what to do and how to do it in regards to your own health, don't count on the wisdom of men. Bring it before the Lord and allow him to lead you in a spirit of love, with a, in a spirit of sound mind. And the same is true in regards to your own spiritual well-being. Don't just take it for granted what people are saying out there. Come to God's word. Don't take for granted what I'm saying. Come to God's word. Allow the Holy Spirit, who is your teacher, to guide you into truth so that you are not moved by a spirit of fear, but you're also moved by a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and of a sound mind. And I pray that what happens for us today. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, as we get into this, I want to read it. Let's just start now by reading it together. Uh, you can follow along. It's, it's not a very long chapter, but it's full of, 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 of many, many things. And so in verse 1, the Apostle John writes and says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... Of course, this is the seven seals that are in the scroll of the hand of God that we read about last week on Easter service, that the Lamb was, was worthy and able, the only one to be able to take from the hand of God. And now we see the Lamb opening one of the seals, Jesus opening one of the seals. And John says, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and beheld or behold a white horse he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out, conquering and to conquer. When he opened up the second seal, I heard the, 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 the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword." Verse 5, and when he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hands. So you've seen that with like the, 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 uh, the lady of justice, and she's blindfolded, and she has the scales, and, and that's the same thing that's being depicted here. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a court of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the water. And then verse seven, when he opened up the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. And so I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on that was death and Hades followed with him. And the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and hunger with death and with beasts of the earth. And when he had opened up the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the under the altar there in heaven where John is looking. <coughs> excuse me. He says, The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony of which they held. And they cried out aloud with a voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and the, their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And then verse 12, John said, I looked and he opened up the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as the sack, sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of the heaven fell to the earth and a, and a fig tree dropped its late figs and it was shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth and great men and rich men, the, com the, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and in the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand. And Lord, we know that because of your son Jesus, we, Lord, will be standing with you, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Advocate, 
And God, I pray for anyone else today who is listening, who has not yet given their lives to you, has not yet put their faith and trust in you and received the work that you've done for them. I pray, Lord, that they would see these things that you're talking about, as a, and it would be a wake-out call for them, Lord, to reevaluate their lives, to reevaluate their, their, their eternal destination and how they, they figure they're going to get there, Lord, and to show them that without you there is no hope. They can't stand apart from you. No one can. So, Jesus, I pray that they would make a decision to put their, their trust in you, that they would call out to you, Lord. We know that your arm's not too short to save those, anyone, no matter what they've done. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to first point out that when we ended our study of chapter 5 last week, all of creation, if you remember, all of creation was, was giving praise and worship. And this worship that is described in chapters 4 and chapters 5, think about this. It's preparation for the wrath of God that has now been described here starting in chapter 6 and going on into chapter 19. And, and with this very different scene of God's judgment um, now being shown to us, it might seem strange to us that the worship and judgment of God would go together. But I think this is strange to us because we do not yet fully understand the holiness of God, the depth of what that is or the depth of the sinfulness of man. Nor can we fully grasp this time, at this time, the, the, the total picture of what God wants to accomplish and how ultimately the, the spiritual forces of darkness and evil have, have, have come in opposition to him. And so even though we know God to be long-suffering, we see that he must eventually judge sin and vindicate his servants, and this is one of the reasons why Heaven is worshiping God. Furthermore, I want to remind us that God has revealed these things and had John write them down as an encouragement to us. These things that we're reading about are intended to be an encouragement to this. And, and, and how do we know this? Because it's evident when we consider that in addition to reading about all these prophetic things that will be fulfilled in, in times, we're also reading about things that dramatically reveal to us the character of God, the person of God and the principles of his kingdom. So in these next chapters that describe the conflict between God and Satan and the new Jerusalem and, and, and Babylon, we must also look, we must keep our eyes to the place where we're looking to see Jesus, the exalted king of kings, as he vindicates his people and gives victory to the overcomers, to us. Now as we continue on into this next chapter, we're being told, as you can see, about future events, okay? We are being told about future events that will take place on this earth. Be certain of that. And, and all of these events really center around two specific things. If you're keeping notes, this is what you're going to want to look at because everything that goes forward from here will fall into one of these two categories. The first is God's judgment of all of the earth and the outpouring of his wrath upon it and upon those who are left behind after the rapture of the church, category one. The second thing is that what we're being what, what, is, what, what is the second thing in regards to what all this is centering around is that there, there's going to be this redemption and spiritual restoration of God's chosen people, the Hebrews. That's the other reason for why we're reading these things here. The Jewish people, and it'll take place during this time when God's judgment and wrath is being poured out. So we have God's judgment, God's wrath, but also the restoration and redemption of God's chosen people, the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. And so these events and the time in which they occur is, is what the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. 76 different times throughout Scripture you have this phrase, the day of the Lord. And this is what we're reading about in chapters 6 through 19. And this a future event, if you're looking for a timeline of how it breaks down, I'm kind of going to give it to you here a little bit this morning. The, the, this, this, this future event, the day of the Lord, consists of a seven-year period of time that is divided up into two equal parts. Each part will last 126 days, or excuse me, 1,260 days. 
or, or three and a half years. And, and we know this because it was prophesied by the, the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And for those of you who are doing the math, because some of you are like that, you need to know that this, this number of days that makes up these seven years is figured in accordance to a prophetic year. And a prophetic year, by definition, consists of exactly 360 days per year rather than the 365 days that are on our modern day calendar. And this is because all ancient calendars that were written at this time when these prophecies were made followed what's called a lunar cycle of 30 days per month or 360 days per year. So as we begin to look at these two, three and a half year periods of time, we need to first understand that scripture teaches us how these seven years are also a countdown pretty exciting thing happens at the end too. These seven years are a countdown of things that must come to pass before the second coming of Jesus Christ, at which time Bible tells us Jesus is going to descend from the clouds of the heaven with power, with glory in order to sit upon a throne, an earthly throne there in Jerusalem, and then there from Jerusalem Jesus will rule and reign over all the earth as lords of as the Lord of Lords, and out as the as a king of kings, we're told for a thousand years, a thousand year reign. And he will judge at that point, it says the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And before we begin to dig into the verses of this next chapter of chapter six, I want to point out Okay, this is where I, uh, the context and the understanding of what we're reading here really helps us to, to move forward without opinion, but with just what God is speaking to us, okay? I need to point out that, and rightly to understand what we're reading about here in chapter 6, that we, that we need, uh, and also what we're going to be reading about, for that matter, in chapter 7 next week, that we need to read that, um, understand that in relationship to, to the whole of the book of Revelation, we got to keep in mind that it's a very Jewish book. Okay, we've talked about this before. And, and one of the things that you need to understand that in regards to Jewish culture, specifically the Jewish style of writing, which is different than the way most books are written today, which, by the way, follow a more traditional style of writing um, in regards to the style of ancient Greek literature, this does not follow that style of writing that we're most familiar with. You see, specifically in that the Jewish style of writing, in regards to the Jewish style of writing, it was customary to begin by telling the whole of a story from the beginning to the end. Okay? And then, as the writer continued to tell the story, the story was retold and accounted in greater detail in order to put emphasis on certain characters or certain events. Let me say that again. In Jewish culture, in the Jewish style of writing, a brief description of the whole account was given up front, from the beginning to the end, and then the story was retold with a highlight of certain things to emphasize the point that was to be made. A good biblical example of this is found in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have this complete overview of the creation account, then in chapter 2, the creation account is retold, but as it is being told again, the focus is on mankind, so that the, the main point of man and his relationship to God, number one, how it was broken and how it was restored, can be retold. And I mention this because the book of Revelation is a very Jewish book, and this is evident in part by the fact, like I mentioned when we began, that there are 360 Old Testament quotes in these 404 verses that make up the book of Revelation. And it's also evident by the fact that when we read, a, what we, by, it's also evident by the fact of what we read of here in Revelation chapter 6 and in Revelation chapter 7, which tells of Jesus opening up the seven seals on the scroll that he had redeemed. And, 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 and actually what we read in these two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7, is a beginning to the end account of the seven years of tribulation, all contained in two chapters. And then the tribulation account, the seven years of God's wrath being poured out, that includes the restoration and the redemption of Israel, this story is then recounted and, and, and told and described with specific details in chapters 8 through 18. So with this contextual understanding, we also see from the words of Jesus 
words that Jesus spoke about end times event, in Matthew chapter 24, we see how these seven seals of judgment, which overview the seven years of tribulation, they directly line up in regards to a timeline of events with how Jesus said these future things would take place during this time. So it's a confirmation, it's an affirmation of what we're looking for now. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to pick up in verse 3. And we'll read on down through verse 14. Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 14. It says, Now, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of this age, and the end of the age? And so, in the context of what's being written there, we see really as presented as two questions, but that second question that there is really has two parts. So you can really kind of break this down as, as the disciples asking three questions. And so Jesus answered and said to them, number one, take heed that no one deceives you. Right, guys? That's even what we've been talking about this morning. Take heed that no one deceives you. A lot of people out there speaking all kinds of different things, but you have the Holy Spirit of God and God's word to lead you into truth down the path of righteousness, a place where love and of a sound mind and the power of God's spirit is, is moving through your life. And so take heed that no one deceives you. And why did he say that? Because he's getting ready to tell them the truth. He said, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars so that you are not troubled. See or see that you are not troubled for all, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you to <coughs> to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will be offended will betray one another and will hate one another then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many and because lawlessness will abound the love of many will grow cold but he who endures till the end shall be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as witnesses to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. <clears throat> I'm going to encourage you to, to go back to Revelation chapter 6. Keep your spot here in, in Matthew chapter 24, because we're going to connect some dots between the things that Jesus said and between the things that we read here in Revelation chapter 6. And as we take a look at Jesus' answers to his disciples' questions and compare them to what we've previously read here in chapter 6, is what we're going to see is we're going to see the same series of events being accounted. They correlate. And it helps us to gain understanding of the things that John saw here in this chapter. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, what is being spoken of here is false Christs, Correct? Well, if we go back to Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you have the first seal, and in that there's a white horse, right? A, a, a rider on a white horse who comes conquering and to conquer. And what we'll see when we get into this chapter today is that this is the, the Antichrist, the false Christ who comes. And then if you look at verse 6, as we continue on in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks about wars. And then the second seal in, in Revelation chapter 6 verses 3 and 4, there's the second seal, brings forth the red horse, and this horse is one that brings wars. Then in verse 7, it's, 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 it's several parts, so let's just say 7a, Matthew chapter 24, as you're following a chronological time of events or a series of events, in, in 7a you have famines, and then in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation chapter 6, you have the third seal be open, a black horse and a rider, and it's famine. Again, perfectly lining up. Then in Matthew chapter 24 and 7b, and then on into verse 8, there's, there's death. 
And then we have the fourth seal, which is the pale horse, and its rider is death. And then um, back in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13, there's, a, this, there's the martyrs, those who are suffering for Christ and enduring to the end, uh, is what Jesus is speaking about there in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13, the martyrs. And then the fifth seal, with the fifth seal, what we get is this glimpse to the altar of God in heaven, and there are the martyrs, those who die for the name of Christ during this tribulation period in verses 9 through 11 in, in Revelation chapter 26. And then lastly, I, I will define this maybe with my own words a little bit to interpret it um, with some kind of definition, but in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 13, really what you see is this worldwide chaos taking place, and that's ultimately the, the, the sixth seal in, in verses 12 through 17 of the book of Revelation. And then the last thing I want to point out before we look at chapter 6 in the context of, of, of an order of events perfectly lining up with what Jesus said, now being revealed to John in Revelation chapter 6 with the whole account of the tribulation period being, being spoken of here by the opening of the seven seals is that in Matthew chapter 24 verse 14 we're told of these witnesses who will preach that says the gospel to all of the nations and then it says then the end will come. And if you look ahead to Revelation chapter 7, okay, you will see that with, the, with the, the, the last seal, that when it is opened, we're told about the 144,000 Jewish male virgins who go forth as witnesses, who have the seal of the living God of them, bringing forth the salvation of God that is then sung by a great multitude of heaven. And so with this understanding, right, we can go back to Revelation chapter 6. We have the keys that are beginning to open and unlock this for us. And so in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 6, it says, Now I saw the Lamb open one of the seals. And I heard the four living creatures, these are the, the, the angels there in heaven, saying with a loud voice, a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold... A white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, I, I kind of love the way that John introduces that. Uh, this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, 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 I look at this like, is if sometimes like, wow, what if it was me? What would I feel? What would I be doing while I was up there witnessing all these things if God had chosen me, you know, to, to be the one to have this revelation? What was John going through? And, 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 this first seal that the Lamb opens creates this vision for John to see. But with the opening of the seal, there's also this mention of one of the four angels described back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, and he speaks in a way that kind of needs, there's this need to command John's attention. It's kind of like, hey, John, pay attention. And, 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 and I don't think that John wasn't, wasn't not paying attention, but I suspect because this is probably what I would be like if I was up there, I would suspect that he was distracted and even preoccupied, considering he was still in the throne room of God, right? And God was on the throne, and millions upon millions of people were worshiping God at this time that we read about in verses in chapter 5, and they were singing praises to the Lamb of God. So according to verse 1, this angel's voice rung out like thunder, like a clap of thunder, grabbing John's attention, calling John's attention, and the first thing that John saw was a man. A man riding a white horse who had been given a bow, it says, and a crown to go out and conquer. And, 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 and now, when you think about this, the thing that I think about when I think about somebody riding in on a white horse, I think about Western movies, right? Because most Western movies, it depicts the good guy riding on a white horse with a white hat, right? And the bad guy, he's got the black horse and the black hat. And, and you can cheer for the good guy and boo the bad guy. But in this case, that's not the instance. It's not the instance. As the writer here appears, without a doubt, guys, to be the Antichrist. And typically, when we think of the word anti, do we not? We think that it means to be against. And even though the Antichrist is certainly against Jesus Christ, the better meaning, the better definition of anti in this case is literally fake or false. Meaning that the Antichrist will look like a good guy who rides in as the hero on a white horse, but he's nothing more than a fake who masquerades as a real savior. And what we will later be told in Revelation chapter 19, you can look ahead there, that's a good chapter by the way, 
in Revelation chapter 19 is that when Jesus, who is the true, tri- true Christ, when he comes, he also rides in on a white horse. But Jesus, the true Savior, his eyes are like flames of fire. He has many crowns upon his head and also the sword that comes from his mouth. And the thing that's different between the Antichrist and the real Christ is that when Christ comes, he'll bring real peace, it says, a lasting peace upon the earth. And the point is that the Antichrist, like all of Satan's deceitful workers, are fakes who come with fake news and disguise themselves to look like good guys in order to deceive people and lead them astray. So we should should expect nothing less and nothing more from the Antichrist when he comes. And remember, the Bible tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. And when we hear so many contrary things going on in regards to people's opinion and what's best for you to do, there's a certain spiritual aspect of it that's taking place that we as believers need to be alerted to because we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against principalities, spiritual things, powers of darkness. And we have to be afraid of that because we have the truth and the light of God's word inside of us. But the fact of the matter is, is, is uh, people are going to present themselves in ways where they think, oh, I'm just looking out for your best interest. I only want what's best for you. And they come with the same spirit of the Antichrist looking to deceive, looking to harm, looking to destroy. So rely upon Jesus. Rely upon the truth of God's word. Be putting that in more than you're putting in the things of this world during this time. One will bring forth love and a sound mind. The other will bring forth fear. But Jesus comes and he brings peace. And the Antichrist comes as a fake. And so he comes to deceive. And remember in 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, it says this about about Satan and, and his minions. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul writes and says, he says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, it's it's not a great thing of his ministers to also transform themselves into a minister of righteousness. Do not be deceived. So when the Antichrist comes, he will be masquerading as a good guy. He'll have a bow, it says, as his weapon. For you who are are true Bible scholars and want to know more about it, uh, this is kind of a a, a connection to Nimrod back in the Old Testament. I don't have time to go through all of that right now. Um, But there's some really cool studies out there on that. I encourage you to kind of check that out. But, But the fact that he comes here with a weapon... The thing to consider about this is, is that a bow is that there's no mention of any arrows... No mention of any quiver. And we know that a bow is pretty much a useless weapon without any arrows. However, the fact that this rider comes conquering and to conquer with the bow in his hand and does not have any arrows, that that's deliberately not spoken to, it's significant because for, for us it reveals the way the Antichrist comes into the power. He comes into power without ever firing an arrow, without ever using a weapon of war. And this might seem strange to us, but the fact of the matter is is that that when the Antichrist is accepted by the world, we're told, as a conqueror and takes the position of power over all the world, it's not through the act of war, it's through speaking pompous words. And he does so to broker a peace treaty that is supposed to last for seven years. He comes into power by means of peace. And this is what is written about in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27. Listen, it says, And after the 62 sevens, the Messiah shall be cut off. So there's this whole 70-week prophecy of Daniel. It talks about the Messiah coming at a certain time and then the Messiah being cut off. Uh, We know that's through the crucifixion. As Daniel says, it's not for himself. We know that, that the Messiah wasn't cut off for himself. But for others, and it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a, with a flood till the end of wars of desolations are determined. Then he shall come, or then, then he shall confirm, okay, this is speaking about 
the one who's to come, the Antichrist, then he shall come and confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And that's speaking of, of, of seven years. It says, then Daniel writes, but in, in prophetically he says, but in the middle of the seventh week, right, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. So the temple's going to be rebuilt. He's going to bring an end to the sacrifices and offerings that will take place at that time. And then it says, on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes things desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, as we go through the detailed description of these end-time events in chapters 8 through 18, we're going to talk a lot more about this. So there's, there's going to be a lot of questions that now pop in your mind, a lot of what we're reading here. But what I want to focus in on is just a couple of things in regards to the Antichrist. Because this war that the Antichrist is going to broker peace from that brings these desolations to the earth that Daniel writes about is also prophesied about in Ezekiel chapter 28. Okay? And in that passage of prophecy, we're told that Gog, who is the ruler of the nation of Magog, and all of his allies who are, who are north of Israel, which, by the way, are mostly all Muslim nations, that they will gather together and they will attack Israel in this battle that's coming. But when they attack, God's going to intervene, we're told, on Israel's behalf. And the death toll of these armies that had come against Israel, we're told in the book of Ezekiel that it is so great that it takes seven months for Israel to bury all of the bodies. Wow. A death toll like has never been. A war like has never been. But as a result of this awful war that is full of death, the road to peace, the road to a peace treaty is then paved. It makes the way. And it prepares the way for the Antichrist to come on the scene with his pompous speech, that is spoken of also in Daniel chapter 7, and he is able to broker to issue this peace treaty among all these nations. And in light of this, he's seen by the world to be a savior. Great catastrophe, great death, great war, great adversity. But here comes this one speaking, speaking words, and he brings peace to the world. But the reality is he brings a false peace. He brings a false peace as war on the red horse, famine on the black horse, and death on the pale horse is what rides in behind the Antichrist who comes on the white horse. And so in verses 3 and 4, we read on, and it says in chapter 6, it says, And when he opened up the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to be the last seal that we get through today. <laughs> We're not going to be able to go any further than these verses. So please tune in next week. You know, however that is, whatever the Lord allows for, whether we're back together, I'm praying for that. I don't think it's going to happen, but whether it's via the internet, but, but tune back in so we can go through the rest of this chapter together. But for this second seal, when we see the second seal being open, it releases this, this horse, this red horse, a fiery red horse, and its rider comes into the earth and it takes the peace from the earth and people then once again rise up and begin to kill one another. And in regards to a timeline of events, we can discern from what the book of Daniel tells us and from what the remaining chapters of the book and what we read in the remaining chapters of the book of Revelation that, that this taking away of peace happens at an event that's referred to as the abomination of desolations in the middle of the, 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 the uh, seven years of tribulation. Tribulation, literally at the three and a half year mark, 1260 days into it. And, and at this time, Revelation chapter 13, we'll get to it, but I'm going to reference it. It teaches us that the Antichrist will have suffered a, a, a wound, a deadly wound um, at this time. And, and, and in doing so, it'll appear to the entire world that he, has, that he has died and somehow was miraculously risen back to life. In addition to this, we're told that the Antichrist at that moment is then indwelt or empowered at the very least, energized some way by Satan. And he, and he is able to bring forth further deceptions and, do, and deceive many by doing things that have this appearance of being miraculous, supernatural. Consequently, after three and a half years, 
of peace, the Antichrist will go into the temple of God. This is what Daniel spoke about, the temple that will be reconstructed, into the holy place behind the veil, a new veil, a, a, a false veil, if you will, because we have access to God through his son, Jesus Christ. But the, the Hebrew people who still live with scales over their eyes, you know, and that, we're going to talk about that. That's, those are going to be removed. But they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the holy and the most holy place and hang the veil again. But yet the, the Antichrist, he'll come into the temple of God. He'll come into the holy place and he will demand to be worshiped as God. And the Bible refers to this event as the abomination of desolations. And it is spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. It says, And then he will make a covenant with many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And then in Daniel chapter 11, a little bit further on, continuing on with this prophecy that Daniel's speaking about in verse 31, it says, and all forces shall be mustered up by him. So he comes in, demands to be worshiped. He takes a position now, not as a peacemaker, but as a war lord. And he musters up these armies that they should defile the sanctuary fortresses, that they shall take away the daily sacrifices and, and, and place there the abomination of desolation. And lastly, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 11, also speaking about this, we're told, and from that time the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up and there shall be from that time 1,290 days. In, in light of this, Jesus, speaking about these end-time events, also issued a warning. In light of this, about these end-time events, Jesus also issued a warning in Matthew chapter 24. It's the rest of what we read. I stopped in verse 14, and I saved the, the second part of it for now. In verse 15, on through 22, and Jesus said this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then Jesus takes a pause, or excuse me, Matthew takes a pause to, to interject the importance of this, and he says, whoever reads it, let him understand, parenthesis. So therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, Jesus speaking of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in a field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those to those who are nursing babies in that day. And pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would, would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Debbie, if you and the worship team want to come up, we're going to end here. We have time to get into the other part of this, this passage. But this this, these verses and the things that we're reading about here, we see the other aspect of, of the importance of what's going on here in regards to the redemption and the restoration of the nation of Israel, God's elect. And it is at this point that God begins to remove, we're told, at this three and a half year period of Mark, with, uh, through the, 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 the tribulation period, with the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist who has brokered this peace between Israel and the rest of the world will now rise up armies to come against God's people. It's at this point that God begins to remove the spiritual blindness from the eyes of his people, the Hebrew people, and they will recognize the Antichrist for who he really is, and then they will also begin to turn back to God. And God will protect them, we're told, during this remaining three and a half years of tribulation. And in doing so, listen, church, God will fulfill his covenant to them that last seven-year period of time, that 70th week spoken of in Daniel, 
where God's dealing with the Hebrew people, opening their eyes to him, to Jesus the Savior, and they will come to know Jesus as their Messiah, Messiah, and they will be redeemed, and they will be restored back to God the Father. I want to end there this morning because the thing that this points out to us in regards to the nature of God, the person of God, is that God is faithful no matter what to his people to the covenants that he's made, to the promises that he's made, to the promises that he's made to us, to the covenants that he has made with us. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us. God still promises to be our God, to be in control, to work good, to give us hope for our future, to provide for our needs, to never leave us, to never forsake us, to give us a place in eternity where Jesus has gone before us, building homes that we may come and live with him. And because God is faithful to his promises to us, we have no reason to fear. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel broke their end of the deal, but yet God remained faithful. And many times in our own walk with the Lord, we fail. But in this, with this reminder, with these things that we see, that in these last days that we're going to read about here and study through, is that God's concerned not only about wrath and judgment, but he's concerned about restoration and healing. Not one of his own will be lost, is what the Bible says. Jesus said to the Father, all that you have put into my hands, I have not lost one. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become one of those that have come into his hands. So I encourage you this morning to remember who has you, to remember who you've put your faith in, the one who is faithful, the one that keeps his promises. And I challenge you this morning, if you are in this place of fear today because you don't have an eternal hope, a lasting hope, an eternal peace, the peace that comes from God, and you're looking around at the world around you and the things that are going on, and you're being tossed to every which way because of the news and, and because of the uncertainty of this life, I challenge you to put your, put your life in the hands of God, to trust in him, to receive Jesus as your savior, to know that the price that he paid on the cross, that through his death, that he's made a way for you to have life. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you have given us. Lord, we're encouraged by the fact that you've spoken the future to us, the future of this world and the future of your saints. God, we know that there's a day coming when the sound of the trumpet will be heard and we'll be caught up together. Lord, we say even again today, Lord, come quickly. We're ready. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.